this Sunday school, I do intend to split our time first with going through Psalm 5. That's where we'll be in today. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. And secondly, if I can get some practical guides for singing and memorizing the Psalms, we'll use our remaining time with that. Psalm 5, I'm titling The King's Loving Kind Way. The King's Loving Kind Way. Today, we'll see David still as our suffering Messiah, yet we'll see him again obtaining joy in the journey as he takes time to commune and bring his complaints before God. And in doing so, this reassures him with his standing with his king and his God. We call that we are in book one of the Psalter, which primarily deals with the establishment of the Davidic dynasty and dwelling place, and in it, many conflicts abound. It's not as if God just says, here's going to be my king, and the reign just instantly happens, and there's no more enemies. No, there's a lot of warring, a lot of conflict, particularly in book one. Of the various subgroups, the first group we saw was Psalm 1 and 2. Those kind of give us the program for the entire Psalter. In there, we got introduced to the blessed man. Psalm 2 showed us that this was the king whom God was going to install on his holy hill, Mount Zion forever. Again, there's your dynasty and dwelling place, which are the primary concern in book one and the Davidic covenant as well. That king represents his people, the congregation of the righteous, and, that, and, that, and they are blessed by taking refuge in him. It's a common theme we see time and time again. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. We are currently in a second subgroup, Psalms 3 through 7, those are bracketed with historical superscriptions. Those are those little titles above your, you know, whatever chapter of Psalm you have. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's what Psalm 3 starts with. Psalm 7 kind of closes up that bracket. It reveals to us the time when Absalom dies and David finds out. Everything in between there primarily deals with this. Um, I had collected a whole bunch of commentaries that I basically say this, but I'll spare us the details. I went through this a little bit. When I talked about the, the groupings of psalm, the structures of the Psalter in the first two sessions, so I'm just going to leave that there. Important thing to see now is that this current grouping, we have seen God pictured as a shield for David, the one who protects his life. And we've seen God as the lifter of his head. More explicitly, God is the one who gives David the victory over his enemies. Time and time again in book one, we will see a suffering Messiah God's son, who has to depend on his covenant God for protection. So with that, let's look at Psalm chapter 5. It begins, much like the last psalm, Psalm 4, to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. This is nearly identical to the last title, except instead of saying for stringed instruments or on stringed instruments, it says for the flutes. So not much more to really comment on this part, just important for our purposes, this is a psalm by David, continuing in that saga with that Absalom and his rebellion against David. So that brings us to the meat of Psalm chapter 5. And in it, we do find some beautiful, some beautiful poetry again. I kind of have this lifelong dream where I want to learn Hebrew at like really deep level just to appreciate some of the beautiful poetry that is in the Psalter. Um, I, I see commentators bring it out and pastors bring it out, but... It's one of the things, it's like, well, until you get into the original languages, there's, there's some more beauty you'll see even there. But I don't have that at this point, and I probably couldn't communicate it anyways. 
So we're going to go with what we can see here. Like we've seen in the other Psalms, there's going to be a stark contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Really a back and forth. When you look at this Psalm, and I believe the ESV, you can see it kind of has it already in five different paragraphs. It switches back and forth. First paragraph, really about the righteous. Second one, the wicked. Then the righteous, wicked, and righteous. If you remember that chiastic structure that we talked about in the beginning of the series, we have that here. The verses 1 through 3 and verses 11 through 12, both the, the, the um, brackets of this psalm, are talking about David, here pictured as our, our, our Messiah. He is the anointed one in this case. It starts off with a mourning Messiah and ends with a rejoicing Messiah. Up one more level in this chiastic poetic pyramid, verses 4 through 6 talk about David's enemies, specifically the way of the wicked, and verses 9 through 10 talk about David's enemies, the punishment for the wicked. And there at the top, the pinnacle of this pyramid, verses 7 and 8, is God's leading loving kindness and really just the joy and delight that the, the um, righteous have in Christ. Like we've seen in other Psalms, here it's put very plainly. There are two kinds of people, two paths, two, two prospects. Really no third way. That's very cut and dry, black and white. So with that, let's look at our first grouping, verses 1 through 3. Righteous David, our mourning Messiah. Verses 1 through 3 read, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sounds of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Here we find David in great distress. He's groaning, he's murmuring, it could be interpreted. And what he brings to God is the sound of his cry. He is a mournful Messiah. Though David has shown himself time and time again to be a man of great faith, still we see these are distressful situations. It is a very distressful situation. His enemies are still pursuing him. He's shown great faith in it, but they are still pursuing him. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to take his crown, ultimately his life. Worse off, this is led by his own son, Absalom. And this is something that, obviously, as a king would be devastating, as a human is, is awful. But as a father, this is not anything you wish for your children. I was thinking about it, and we wish for our children to rise us and call us blessed. But here, Absalom is rising up with an army to kill his father. It's a devastating situation. You can understand, like we saw in Psalm 3, those, those mocking cries, the, there is no salvation for you in God, that they would tell David. You can see why this pierces him to the bone. There in verse 1, that word groaning is the same word for meditation, kind of a callback to Psalm chapter 1. It's the noun form of what we read in the first psalm. The blessed man meditates on God's law, his Torah, his wisdom for life, if you will, day and night. And if you have a King James or a Geneva, it actually translates it that way, meditation, helping us better see that connection with Psalm 1. Either way, the emotions and trials David is experiencing cause him to come to his God, as it says in verse 2. And when does he does it? Verse 3, in the morning, the first fruits of the day, if you will. 
Before moving on, I do want to deal with a small translation difference here. In our ESV, it says, the bottom part of verse 3, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. If you have an NIV, it says, I lay my request instead of prepare a sacrifice. NASB says, order my prayer. King James, I think it's actually New King James, it says, direct my prayer. So all the rest of them say prayer, ours says sacrifice. What's the difference? Well, this verse has no direct object. And if you're kind of rusty in grammar, it's like if I went to the kitchen and said, I'm going to eat. That has subject, verb, but there's no direct object. But if you saw me pulling um, long noodles and pasta sauce out of my fridge, you would assume, oh, he's going to eat spaghetti. But in my sentence, if I had a direct object and just said, I am going to eat spaghetti, then there's no ambiguity, there's no question, I am talking about, I'm going to eat spaghetti. In this verse, there is no direct object. So literally, the verse reads, in the morning I prepare for you and watch. Does he prepare prayer or does he prepare sacrifice? Well, like I was saying, if you were in my kitchen and I said, I'm going to eat, and you saw me pulling out long noodles and pasta sauce, um, context would help you figure that out. So I kind of looked at Psalm 1 and 2, and one standard device in Hebrew poetry we find a lot, parallelism. So if you look back at verse 1 and 2, verse 1 starts, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give ear and consider, essentially saying the same thing, right? This is what Hebrew parallelism does. It basically uses synonyms to say the same thing. My words, my groaning, essentially the same. Verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, for to you do I pray. My cry, I pray, essentially the same thing there. So verse 3, is there still parallelism going on? Verse 3 reads, let's read it again. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare for you and watch. Sometimes in Hebrew parallelism, there aren't synonyms. Sometimes they just say the same thing. In this case, it does say that. In the morning first phrase, in the morning, second phrase. The first phrase is my voice. All the other times we saw that in verse 1 and 2, my words, my groaning, my cry, it's his prayer. His voice then is, ESV says, sacrifice. This is like me going in the kitchen, pulling out all those long noodles, pasta sauce, saying I'm going to eat, and then you saying, oh, you're going to have a hamburger. No, I'm going to eat spaghetti. I think that's what we have here. Uh, I think the Hebrew parallelism clearly kind of makes this more of a shut and close case that it is the sacrifice he's talking about. Now, as one commentator points out, the verb translated, I make preparations, may be used with respect to the making of formal preparations for a sacrifice, such as setting up the wood on the altar, getting the incense ready. So it's used that way sometimes. But the word can also be used for preparing one's words. That's more like a legal case or a formal plea or a debate that you're going to make. And there can be no certainty that it is used in any technical sacrificial sense here. Other times in the Psalms, we see, I mean, we see some, some very parallel wording used. For example, Psalm 88, 13. But I, O Yahweh, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. There no ambiguity. It's talking about prayer. So I think that the King James is a very good translation when it says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you 
and watch expectantly. No matter the trouble David is in, he's not too busy to come first thing to God in prayer, and he does so in, in a formal manner. He, he comes with groaning, he comes with crying, but it's for a purpose. He's going to bring a case before God. Now, one thing I did want to, I've been meaning to point out, but I, I haven't yet, is one of the Psalms books that I use is just Luther's little, reading the Psalms with Luther. And it doesn't really have anything deep or profound. But I, what I really like about it is he always brings up in every Psalm, how does this relate to the Lord's Prayer? Since, like we argued in, in the first two sessions here, the Psalms are not just a, a hymn book for the church, but they are also a school of prayer for us. There's a lot we can learn prayer-wise from it. And Luther also will bring up how it's related to the Lord's Prayer as well and the Ten Commandments. So um, I did want to bring some more of that out, not directly from Luther, but just as we come upon this. So I want to take time and, and, and kind, of, kind of think about when I see, so far, every time David has been in trouble, first thing he's done is prayed. Before he even ran for his life, he prayed. They, they seem to be short, simple prayers, but nonetheless, he prayed. And I thought, how often am I so busy, quote unquote, right? It's kind of like a, a merit badge of the American. We're so busy. We're so busy doing this, so busy doing that, that one of the first things I leave off is prayer or I leave behind. Going back to Luther, one time he was asked what he was going to do on the following day, and he answered, quote, Work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And if anyone was too busy, it was Luther. But still, he brought those first fruits, like David is here. In the morning, I will come to you and pray. Now, I'm not arguing you need to have three hours like Luther but if you have zero minutes, like I do sometimes, then okay, maybe I need to start with at least five minutes. If you have five, let's shoot for 10. You know, you can increase, like Pastor Ryan has said, you're never going to regret spending more time in prayer. Uh, back at verse three, the way it ends, notice that this prayer, well, also the end of verse two, it's directed towards God. And then he watches. This is really a picture of an archer drawing back his bow, making it ready on the target, releasing, and waiting for it to hit its mark. Whether that's the elk dropping or hitting the target, whatever it is, he's waiting. He's expectantly waiting. This um, was interesting to me because I, I think it was last weekend. We were watching some nature documentaries with my family, and we've all seen the sea turtles that will go on the beach, lay eggs, and then they just leave, kind of abandon their young, and you see the little turtles crawl to the beach, as long as they don't get eaten by, you know, whatever birds of prey are around, they make it, and they kind of just got to survive on their own. I thought, how often are our prayers, my prayers in particular, like that? I'll kind of pray for something, or mention, you know, if someone asks me, what do you need prayer for? Oh, well, let me, let me count the ways, give them that stuff, and then just kind of forget about it, sadly. The sea turtle, there's, like, there's a name for it amongst, I guess, sea turtle nerds, I guess that's, they call, it's, it's a type of species that lays and goes away. And how often do we lay our prayers before the altar and then just go away and just kind of forget about them? This is one reason it's been really helpful that Pastor Ryan, when he asked us, you know, what do you guys need me to pray for this month? Or like he's mentioned, he has a prayer journal. Because you can kind of go back and see like, oh, here's things I prayed for that I totally forgot about. 
I haven't given God thanks. He answered this prayer. I had one example where there's something we've been praying about for over two years now, I think, and I just totally forgot it. I just kind of took it for granted, like, hey, cool, that happened. And when I look back at it, I kind of prayed for a C-plus result, if you will, and God gave, like, an A, and just far greater than anything I would have thought. And I, it really humbled me as I stopped and considered these, the silly tea, sea turtle illustration. But what was cool about that documentary is these weren't sea turtles. They were Amazonian river turtles. Those turtles don't just lay and go away. They're actually waiting for their young right as soon as they drop into the Amazon River. And, you know, the music swelled, and the narrator's like, ah, oh, the baby has found his mother. You know, and it, it was just like, it's like, oh, it's so cool. And um, just a simple reminder that, you know, God rewards those who wait for him. Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This shows our dependence on him, and he blesses that. Last thing I think we can take away from the school of prayer in this psalm is psalm is uh, verse 2. I didn't, I didn't go to it in super detail, but notice those encouraging words, my king and my God. If you remember from the last time, we, we looked at, at Spurgeon saying how the greatest argument that, that we have that God answers prayer, like, yes, your prayer, my prayer, me, insignificant me, he answers our prayers, is the last one was election. I think the quote was something like, he, because he chose to love you, he cannot but choose to hear you. And here, I like what Spurgeon says as well, regarding my king and my God in David's plea. He says, observe carefully these little pronouns, my king and my God. They are the pith and marrow, that is the sum and substance of the plea. Here is a grand argument why God should answer prayer because he is our king and our God. We are not aliens to him. He is a king of our country. Kings are expected to hear their subjects. We are not strangers to him. We are worshipers. He is our God by covenant, by promise, by oath, by blood. So there was kind of our, our little school of prayer I wanted to make sure I, I highlight a little bit. But anyways, going back to this first group, we see David, a mournful Messiah. So what is this heart-wrenching case that he brings before the Lord? This brings us to our next grouping in verses 4 through 6. They read, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David's case is God's character, particularly his character in contrast to that of wickedness and their way. This isn't much different from the example of the greater David set for his disciples in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are exclaiming who God is saying that he is holy, he is set apart. And when you notice in here, the way David presents all of these truths are in the negative. Six things which are contrary to God. Number one, wickedness does not delight Yahweh. Two, no evil dwells or sojourns with him. 
3, those who boast do not stand before him. 4, workers of iniquity he hates. 5, liars he will destroy. And 6, or rather liars will be destroyed. And 6, Yahweh abhors or abominates those who seek bloodshed and deceive. Plainly put, God is holy, therefore evil is incompatible with him. He will not allow it in his presence. Hallowed be thy name. This is the way of the wicked. You can understand why the blessed man is not to walk in this path. Simply, it does not please his Lord. Moving on to the next grouping, verses 7 and 8. Um, this is the high point of it. Again, we're back with the righteous here. And again, note the strong contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Starting with verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. It's beautiful. And do you see how God-centered that is? It's one of the most God-centered pleas we have from David, in my opinion. Here, I found Hamilton's commentary very helpful. He pointed out that, quote, the fact that Yahweh hates the kind of satanic schemes that Absalom has attempted in his effort to usurp the kingdom of God and steal it from his own father lead David to the confident assertions, those ones we just read in 7 and 8. And those affirmations match the negations that we read in the previous section. So there were seven negations we read previously. Here there are six times you, you, you hear David saying, your steadfast love, your house, your temple, fear of you, your righteousness, your way. To kind of sum it up, Yahweh hates wickedness, but David experiences Yahweh's abundant loving kindness. No evil sojourns or dwells with Yahweh, but David will enter into Yahweh's house, this being the place of his presence, dwelling in his presence. The boastful will not stand before Yahweh's eyes, but David will bow down to his holy temple. That has some callbacks to Psalm 1-2 about the wicked not being able to stand in the judgment. And lastly, Yahweh destroys liars and abominates those who shed blood and deceive. But because David fears Yahweh, as it says here, that fear of Yahweh keeps him from such destructive tactics. That is not the way of the righteous. The blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners, but rather asks God to lead him in his loving, kind ways. It's all because, as the beginning of that verse says, his loving kindness. This is what leads him. That's the doorway to God's presence and his blessing, God's loving kindness. One commentary notes here, David models a character reinforcing prayer that finds strength in the rehearsal of what does and does not please the Lord. Though under such trying circumstances, the knowledge of Yahweh's character keeps David from the wicked ways of responding to what he catalogs here, you know, all, all those wicked ways we talked about, those six wicked ways, the rehearsal of Yahweh's character um, shows us that this is not just, he's not on a campaign, a bloodthirsty quest for vengeance. The rehearsal of his character assures David that because Absalom has pursued that kind of course, he will not prevail. This gives David assurance that, yes, Yahweh's way will prevail, not the way of the wicked. Through the abundance of 
your steadfast love, it says, I will enter your dwelling place. What a contrast, again, we see between the righteous and the wicked. Two people, two paths, two prospects. Let us thank our Lord, God, our righteousness, for putting us on the straight and narrow, that highway of holiness, for broad is the road that leads to destruction. That is the high point there of the psalm, God's leading loving kindness. Our next grouping, we get back to the wicked, and it shows us the way of the wicked, kind of like we previous law, previously saw, but it also gets into the punishment of the wicked, verses 9 through 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Interesting that first we had the abundance of God's loving kindness, and it's contrasted with the abundance of the wicked's transgressions. They're just compiling and compiling it on them. Verse 9, of course, that language you've heard before, the Apostle Paul uses that in Romans 3 to not just show that these enemies of David are wicked, but that Jew and Gentile, all humanity are under the guilt and the power of sin. This is the condition of all those fallen in Adam, Paul would argue. I like how Thomas Goodwin pointed out here that for a doctor to heal but the lungs or the liver, if corrupted, is counted a very great cure, though performed upon just one part of the body. But in this case, all the inward parts are rottenness, right? This is total depravity. How great a cure it is then to heal thee, such as is only in the skill and power of God to do. This is not a condition we can just read a self-help book on, pop a pill. It's something that the great physician, God, needs to heal us from, the elements of sin and all of its corrupting effects. Well, as you see here, it has that graphic imagery of the throat being an open grave. What do we find in graves? What are they used for? Well, we put dead things in it, to put it crassly. It's, there's nothing living for it. It's all just for death. The Proverbs describe it as a pathway to destruction. And as we read throughout the rest of the Bible, the grave is never satisfied. This is a condition of our hearts, spiritually speaking, unless God gives us life anew. This is the reason we need regeneration. God leading us in his loving, kind ways. And the image there of flattering with their tongues is a picture of an oily or slippery tongue. So the trap is set of the grave, and it's like it's been greased up. It's, it's easy for one to slip into. Now that I recall, Psalm 73 uses similar language. My feet almost slipped when I considered the ways of the wicked, um, the psalmist would say there. And if you recall, during Absalom's, at the beginning of Absalom's rebellion, Ahithophel, the most trusted advisor by David, the one of whom it says his counsel was, was just taken to the point of it was as if the word of God said it. That's, I wouldn't say that unless 2 Samuel 16.23 said that. Um, but when it turned out that Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom, wicked Absalom, who wanted to overthrow David, 
What's the first thing David prays? Oh, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 2 Samuel 15, 31. Others were listening to Ahithophel's counsel. In fact, that very night was when, you know, worldly speaking, he brought up some good counsel. He said, let's take 12,000 men, hunt down David now. It'd be a surprise attack. There's more of us than him. He won't have time to regroup or do anything. Uh, let's get him while he's scared. And, of course, David's prayer prevails uh, through other means as well that we talked about when we went in uh, Psalm 3 in detail. But ultimately, Ahithophel is causing other people to now slip and stumble. He's creating more men of bloodshed. He is the perfect picture of this psalm of them with a, an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue is slippery, causing others to be trapped. This is why David prays in verse 10, simply for them to get their just desserts. Let's read it again. Make them bear their guilt. That's simply justice, O oh God. Let them fall by their own counsel. They're the ones that have set up this trap. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Here again we see this is not David asking for some personal vengeance, revenge upon him. He is ultimately seeing it is God who is being attacked. The war is ultimately against Yahweh. So David calls on God to act. And God is not just going to sit back and let this happen. As he said in Psalm 2, he, he sees their vain meditations. He laughs them all to scorn. He has set his king on Mount Zion. At this point, I did have a, a large section dealing with a little bit of imprecatory psalms. I probably want to spend a full Sunday school talking about that because I think it deserves some more stuff here. Kind of to uh, summarize it up, it's very much in line with, and actually I was fascinated how many commentaries in this psalm really just saw a picture of Jesus and his words against the barren fig tree. It has its leaves, it's not bearing fruit, cast it down, it's no good. The time for judgment has come. I'll just leave that at that for now. But I, I do want to spend more time. There are going to be more psalms that have more imprecations, that is calling down curses on God's enemies. And um, this one just kind of minorly has one. But when we get into more, I, I think 11 is the next one. Um, I'll probably spend a lot more time in that. So, uh, Well, with that, um, it reminded me of last Sunday's sermon when Pastor Ryan was preaching on Leviticus 26. Lots of curses right in there. God gave warning. He explains his judgments that will come. And if they don't stop, they just ramp up. And eventually God says, okay, I'm getting in the driver's seat now and making this happen, giving you what you want, getting your just desserts. Like Jesus the Messiah towards the barren fig tree, our Messiah here, David, in verse 10, asks God just to make them bear their own guilt. And by what? By falling into their own traps that they set for others. This is very much the voice of wisdom that we see in the Proverbs. Proverbs 28.10, whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit. But there's a contrast, of course. But the blameless will have a goodly inheritance. David himself repeats this towards the end of the Psalter in Psalm 144, closing verses, says, keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. 
if the wicked trap is sprung on themselves, then that trap can do no more harm to anyone else. So this is one way to cease that trap. It is one way that the prayer of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil is answered. Now, we will get more into this when we go through Psalm 7, which, like I said, deals with the death of Absalom. But I do want to point out here that David took no delight in the death of his son. If you recall when it happens, he mourns again. He weeps. He even says, if it were, I wish that it was me who died, not my son Absalom. Though Absalom showed great wickedness and, as we've seen, has been the, the prime example of those evildoers making war against Yahweh and literally against his anointed. William Cooper, this is not the same William Cooper who wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, but rather a minister from the 1600s. He brings this out because there, there is some ironic foreshadowing in this psalm as to what we'll see in seven. He writes, quote, In the same field where Absalom raised battle against his father stood the oak that was his gibbet. That is his gallows, the place where he's going to be hung. The mule whereon he rode was his hangman, for the mule carried him to the tree, and the hair wherein he gloried served for a rope to hang. Little know the wicked how everything which now they have shall be a snare to trap them when God begins to punish them. End quote. That is heavy stuff. These solemn verses though, do segue us into that last part about rejoicing. And interestingly enough, I found this one proverb. I don't remember how I ran into it, but it was almost exactly the same type of segue. Proverbs 29, 6 reads, An evil man is ensnared in his transgressions, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. And that's what we get. Now that we're leaving this section about the punishment of the wicked, we get to the last section. We started with the mourning Messiah, a Messiah that was weeping, and we end with one that is rejoicing, a singing Messiah, if you will. Look at that last group of verses in verse 5. Should be your last paragraph in the ESV, 11 through 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. If you've been going with me through these psalms, coming here and meditating on these psalms, thinking about them, um, then you will see there's a lot of similar language. It's kind of like we're building this psalm vocabulary, and there's a lot of common words we're finding. End of Psalm 2, verse 12, we see, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Again, much like this ending. That is God's Son, take refuge in God's Son, who sits eternally on the Davidic throne. Psalm 3, Yahweh is our shield. Psalm 4, he makes us dwell in safety. End of Psalm 3, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. And on and on it goes. We would just rehearse all the vocabulary that's been getting built into us, just meditating on these first five psalms here. All beautifully connected. And all for the purpose, ultimately, of singing for joy, of exalting in God, of worship. This is one reason we say the Psalter, yes, it's a school of prayer, but it's also a hymn book for the church. So be encouraged, church. God does see our tears. He knows our inward groanings. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. You are his by covenant, by oath, by blood. 
Yes, even you. I, I wondered, it's like almost every single one of these psalms thus far has said, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Do I need to keep hearing this because I don't truly believe it? And the answer is probably yes. Uh, it's very much a, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One way he does that is just repeating the same things over and over again. I um, found another, I mean, most Martin Luther stories are funny to me. I don't know if I would, I don't think I would actually like Luther in person, um, but I love reading about him in church history. Anyways, one of those times when he was summoned, um, I believe this was in Augsburg, before the Roman Catholic Church to answer for one of his heretical opinions, one of the cardinal's minions comes to Luther and is like, you're currently protected by the elector of Saxony. What happens if he stops being your protector? And you know what Luther said? Under the shield of heaven will be my protector. The silence minion then turned around and went his way. If God is for you, who can be against you? Divine favor is a stalwart defense for the soul. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So usually when we're in these, we also look at, you know, where is the voice of Christ in here? We've already, already heard it in the barren fig tree. We'll get more into that in another imprecatory psalm. But um, I think we also see throughout the Gospels that Jesus, the greater David, also was much in prayer. And his prayers often use much of the verbiage, much of the same vocabulary that we're learning in the Psalms, sometimes even directly quoted. As one commentator put it, <clears throat> through prayer, Christ found strength to overcome his wicked enemies despite their lies and violence. And that's what's been happening to David. They've been lying about him. They've trying to enact violence upon him. So how can we, in union with Christ, find that same strength that we need as well? I think the answer is, like I explained, really to model these prayers of David. It's, it's what Christ did. Um, rehearse these to yourself. Rehearse the attributes of God. This is one reason we say theology matters, right? Know and recall who he is, glory in all of his perfections. Surely that reminded David what the destiny of the wicked would be versus his own destiny, seated on the throne of God. The ultimate David to come, that is. May that knowledge of God embolden us by God's loving kindness to continue to walk in his holy ways. This psalm shows us that God protects his king. And as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. If you notice, much like the other psalms, they start off as personal pleas. Just David is saying, Lord, protect me. I, 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 I. But note how they all will end talking about the collective, about the group. Save your righteous ones. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. This is the king's loving, kind way. And I did kind of try to make some wordplay with that. It is a call to Isaiah 35.8, which puts it more commonly as the king's highway or the highway of holiness. As the ESV puts that verse, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. God knows the way of the righteous, as Psalm 1 says, for it is he who leads us therein, Psalm 23 will say. May he continue to lead us in his loving kindness, for that is the doorway into his presence, as we see in this beautiful psalm. 
That is everything I have on Psalm 5. Are there any questions on Psalm 5? Otherwise, we're going to bust out some hymnals. Excellent, we have time. Let's do this. Go ahead and grab one of your Psalters. You should have them around. And one thing I wanted to bring out last time, but I did not have my own Psalter, so I tried to ad-lib it, and it was a big fail. Mostly, it was partially, partially fail, was ways to sing. So first thing I want to show, actually, Joe, could you pass out those papers, or, or, or Ruben, can you grab those right behind? Yes, and you, all the men, thank you. Yeah, put him to work too. He's right there. So this is a two-sided sheet. Um, one side has a QR code with a small URL address. Judah, if you want to put that up there. Um, so one thing I'm trying, that's helping me memorize these psalms is by hearing them in song, putting them in a playlist. And so if you go to that website, those are really just my notes. I really only have this pretty thorough through Psalm 7. I've only memorized up through 4 currently partially five, um, but that's a resource for you to be able to find some of these resources. Also, I wanted to bring out, well, if you, if you go to that site, actually, if you have an extra one, can I have one of those? Because I don't think I have one of those. Either one. Thank you. So you scan that QR code, and I was kind of rushed doing this, so this is not 100% complete, but this, these are my kind of personal notes, but I try to organize them in a way that would be helpful. So you can go to the site, t.li slash Salter. That's kind of the short form. It takes you to a Notion site. That is a note-taking app. You can trust it. It's fine. I'm not buying or selling anything. There's no ads. Um, the first thing you'll see there is an everything playlist. These are just psalms, songs from the psalms. Sometimes they're word-for-word psalms in ESV or King James. Sometimes they're Salter psalms. Sometimes they're just people's 98% paraphrase that is good enough to where if I memorize it, I'd be like, yeah, that counts. Um, the second list down there, you see my personal playlist. That's the one I'm using. So what you could do, if you're interested in this, is you could look at that master list. And all the songs on that master list, I've kind of already, in my opinion, these would be fine to memorize. You know, Yeah, you can memorize whatever song you want. You can go memorize a Hill song if you want to go that route. Um, but if you're thinking about memory, just kidding, don't do that. Um, but if you're thinking about, I, saw, I got some faces, I'll sing if you're paying attention. But if you're thinking about memorizing the Psalms in particular, these are excellent ones. Um, and I think for Psalm 1, I have like five out there. For Psalm 2, I have like four different options. Um, but of course, we have our own Psalter, which is here. And if you look in linkage, psalter.org, takes you to all the resources. I know some of you already know this. You can get an app for this. But if you're not sure about the melodies, you can just click on the psalm. It plays you a little preview of it. A very easy way to sing these on your own. If that is still not your favorite, I actually, I actually wasn't super happy with any of the Psalm 2. Not, not, not word-wise. Word-wise, the Psalters I saw of Psalm 2 were fine. But I found this really cool one. It's on the back of your little half sheet, which conveniently fits into your Psalter. Look at that. That is just super convenient. This one is really cool because, as you can see, the first stanza of all of it, verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 2. The second stanza is verses 7 through 9. And then the last one is, or the third one is 10 through 12. 
And then, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of people who will do psalms and call it like, this is Psalm 2, they will, they'll go beyond, you know, they'll, they'll start, and Jesus fulfills it in this way, which I'm fine with, but if I want to memorize like a psalm, I just want the psalm itself. The cool thing this one does is it kind of cheats by just giving you more scripture. So verse 4 is actually Acts 4, 24 through 28, and then the fifth verse there is Romans 1, 1 through 4, and Revelation 19, 6 through 10. And it's, it, uh, it makes Psalm 2 explicit. I mean, we as Christians know um, what it is, but another thing I really like about it is it goes to a familiar melody, crown him with many crowns. That's a great hymn that I think matches Psalm 2 very well since it's talking about the dynasty, the reign of Christ. So let me just, I got three minutes um, feel free to sing along with me. Let's just do verse one and four and five, and you can kind of, you can hear the greatness of it. Joe, feel free to turn me down. I have no idea how this is going to go. Why do the nations rage? Why do kings plot in vain? To overthrow Jehovah's rule and his Messiah's reign. The Lord in fury laughs, from heaven's throne he speaks. The crown will rest on Zion's hill for all eternity. All right, so that's, that's really good, very simple. It goes through the rest of the psalm, and just for time's sake, I'm just going to read verses 4 through and 5. Gentiles aligned with Jews, Herod and Pilate won. Though split by spite, they unified against God's holy son, right? Just straight out of Acts. With godless hands, they nailed life's author to a tree, yet in their hatred carried out what sovereign grace decreed. And then it gets into, and then the last verse is Romans and Revelation verses. God's one and only son, king of eternity, for sinners bled, then conquered death to prove his deity. Soon from his father's throne, crowned brow and flaming eyes, the lamb will come to dash his foes and wed his radiant bride. That is epic. Um, so just FYI, there's lots of resources out there. I'm going to link to all these in that post. Last thing I wanted to show was, eh, we got one minute, we'll do this super fast. Because I did bring my own hymnal. I think last time I said, you know, if you don't happen to have an Elizabeth in your house with a piano and everyone knows music, and you're looking at these, you're like, you don't have access to the internet, so maybe, or maybe you, you're not a fan of the melodies. Maybe they haven't grown on you yet. I like them. Then there are other options. Like if you turn to Psalm 3, it's in the same meter. And I'm going to have one of these links that shows you if this meter matches that, you could sing it to this song. So Psalm 3, for example, you could sing to Amazing Grace. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes against me, many rise. On and on. Psalm 4, that goes to the tune of, O oh, four thousand tongues to sing. Uh, Give ear, God, of my righteousness, my comfort in distress, yada, yada, yada. And today we will sing Psalm 5, so I'm excited about that. That one goes to the tune of Jesus, lover of my soul. And in Faith Community's hymnal, they actually have three versions of Psalm 5. I, I brought their hymnal in case anyone's interested. Um, because ours is a Psalter, so it has all the Psalms, and it has hymns, but theirs is just a Psalter, so it has a lot more Psalms. Like, it has three options when we have one. 
And their third option on the fifth song goes to the tune of Scarborough Fair. And it is just hauntingly beautiful when you sing it with song five. I love it. And um, that's all I have. We will, uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll uh, adjourn. Well, Father, we just come to you asking you to bless us, Lord. Help us in this next hour to not just seek your blessing, but expect it as we sit under your word read, we sing your word, and we hear your word preached, Lord. Please bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.